Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not wrong. Time for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Katie. We're pretty one work. Lots of it, Rose. What's the problem? Send the police! Hey guys, don't be a hero, mate. No, I said I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh, we're now Carl Williams. Hands for a coffee table with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who would, who would, whose, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount, uh, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be talking about this week, Barney? I'm going to be talking about Daniel Camargo Barbosa. He was also known as the Mangrove Monster, the Colombian Sadist and the Beast of the Andes. He was a horrible, shit-stained, psychopathic serial killer from Colombia in South America, and it is believed that he raped and killed over 150 young girls during the 70s and 80s. That is too prolific. It really is. How about you, Tara? What will you be covering? This week I looked into an Ohio case of a sleazy asshole serial killer who used Craigslist to lure unemployed middle-aged male victims by promising them the job of a lifetime. Then he'd kill them, rob them, and bury them with the help of his gigantic 16-year-old accomplice. Ooh, the Iron Giant. Yeah, yeah. Poor Brogan. Poor Brogan. Hey, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to do a little bit of listener feedback. Would you like to start us off on that, Tara? Of course. So, we got an email from Chris from Atlanta, who we did the marriage proposal for a couple of episodes back. So he told us what happened when we proposed to Marcy Beth for him. What happened? She said yes! Yay! Hey, congratulations. We have a bloody murder wedding on our hands. Wow, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. We're well, going, right? Uh, yeah, totally. They're going to theme it all over us. No, uh, look, uh, I don't think he can afford for us to go. So yeah. I don't think we're going. Well, but, you know, it'd be nice to just see pictures or something. Yeah, pics will shut the fuck up. Hey. Right. I was the one talking, and I, sure, whatever. Hey, Tresna Gill has put up a quote from Dame Mandy. Has anybody ever sent a standard work email and written cunt at the bottom in a white font that, so they'll probably never see it, but you know it's there? 
I do it most days. <laughs> that was pretty popular. I was suggesting that we put it in black font and we all get fired together. Yay. Uh, Jonathan Gulliver put on our Facebook, um, well, he just tagged it Tara, of course. Swearing is illegal in Victoria, Australia, which is where we are. The fine is officially $240. So I am so fucking screwed. Is it only for women? Um, well, generally, no one ever comments on your swearing. So Fuck. latest swearing uh, is way worse. Fuck. It was actually suggested by Jason Abercrombie that that's what our patron account is for, just to pay off my swearing fines. Mm, but I was swear. like, oh, dude, nah, that'd be in the millions by now. I <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't even put a little, a little dint in it. Hey, Tara, on the drive here, mm-hmm. when I picked you up this morning, uh, we had a parcel to open. We did which was pretty damn exciting, we received some presents from Cricket Bidwell Meyer in Kentucky. Oh, wow. Yeah, now that's from her shop, The Napping Raven, at sleepybirdstudios.com. Now, I got in the car, I was running late, as usual, and so I had my shoes in my hand, and I thought I had socks as well, but I got in the car and we started driving and I realised I only had one sock. And I was like, ah, fuck, all right, it's a sockless day for Tara, but no, In the package were two pairs of socks, one that says ringmaster of the shit show. They're they're mine. And the other one that says stay away from assholes. And so they're what I'm wearing right now. Yay. Uh, It also had some maybe you touched your genitals hand sanitizer in it. A world's greatest potty mouth tin, which I think was probably for me. Yeah. um, And some gum, one of which said step aside coffee. This is a job for alcohol. (laughs) <laughs> so awesome We love getting presents And uh, we're going to put the details of Cricket's uh, shop In the uh, show notes Yep, absolutely I've, al- check out I've already boasted on social media Wow, it's some pretty awesome stuff there Yeah, really great stuff Totally and us And now Tara uh, Dexter's home today Because he's he's a little sicky He didn't go to school mm-hmm. And um, I got his last battle cat So he has a complete Voltron now There's five battle cats you oh. have to buy a blue, a red one, uh, a yellow, a yellow, a black one. Anyway, he's got a them all. Green one. So I thought we'd just ask him what he thinks of it. Okay, I'm pretty sure he likes it. I'm pretty but, sure. Um, he likes and it. then afterwards, is he just going to continue on hosting the show with you and I? Sure, go to the why pub? not? <laughs> so, cool. All so right. let's get Dexter up. Cool. So Dex, what do you think of Ultron? I think it's uh, really, 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 really awesome. Yeah, he's pretty kick-ass, isn't mm. he? Do you think he'd be pretty tough? Yeah. So what kind of things does Voltron fight? Uh, mostly, I think, aliens or monsters. I don't know. Yeah, cool. All right, and anything else you want to say? No, no not really. What do you think about this bloody murder thing? Do you know what it's all about? Yeah, true crime. True yeah. crime. People like true crime? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Dex. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Dexy. That was some good work. Yeah, thanks, Dex. So Dex is 10 now, right? 28. No. Yeah, yeah, he's 10. He's 10. Okay, so I'm guessing that you've made him listen to all of our episodes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's listened to all of them. What does he think of it? Well, he says they're a bit scary and he can't sleep at night now. And he prefers case file. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We have some new ones this week, so thank you to Maurey Autumn. What a pretty name. That is very pretty. Reminds me of Maurey Eels, Nature's Beauty. Um, if you'd like to... <laughs> Nature's Electric Penises. <laughs> okay, see, that worked out better than what I was going to say. 
If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Don't search on Patreon because we're not there. Oh, no, we're not there. Patrons have access to more episodes. There's over a dozen of them there now. Oh, and we're going to release another one in a few days That's from right. now. Early access to some of our regular episodes and all levels received free stickers and handmade Barney badges. They will dig your flower pots. They totally will dig all your stuff. Should we get murdery? I think it's time to get murdery. Okay. Let's do it. Richard Beasley was born in 1959 and raised in Akron, Ohio, by his mother Carol, who was a secretary at a local high school. He was married for a short while and had a daughter named Tonya, but she did not ice skate. Oh, not that Tonya? Not that Tonya. Okay. There's more than one Tonya. There is? Yeah, apparently. From 1985 to 1990, he was in a Texas prison on burglary charges, and in 1996, he started another seven-year stint for firearms offences. So he liked to pinch shit, and he liked guns. Yep. Hey, I am DeWeaver. Mm-hmm. He should pinch guns. He should just pinch some guns. Yeah. Well, maybe he had pinched some guns. It's hard to know. He's got a shady past. He does. A very shady past. But he says that he doesn't. He claimed that both periods of incarceration were unjust and based on misunderstandings. Mm. Okay, he did nothing wrong. In 2004, he was released from prison and returned to Akron. He told everyone he was a changed man as he'd found God. Oh. <laughs> he sounded like a, like a, a sad frog coming. Oh. Like it had been a long time for that frog. Oh. Rip it. Oh. <laughs> Rip it. Here's 20 bucks. Um, so, yeah, he found God. He told everyone he was a changed man. Oh. <laughs> like, um, and he began spending a lot of time at a local church called The Chapel. The fact that he looked like a double denim wearing Santa Claus with white hair and a beard also endeared him to people. It's a good look. Yeah, you could kind of, you could do that if you could. No, nah, I don't have much grey hair. As in you don't have much hair or? No, nah, I'm young. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's just cut that bit out. In the mid-2000s, a truck hit Beasley's car and he suffered head, chest and spinal injuries. After the accident, he started taking prescription painkillers and stopped working regularly. He spent a lot of his free time at church where he took part in Bible study and worked in the soup kitchen. Well, that sounds kind of noble. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, but it isn't. Oh, right. Ulterior motives? Always. A friend of his, Michael Rafferty, who had known Beasley for 20 years through local motorcycle clubs they were both members of, said Beasley always had a little bit of an angle going on. Jerry Rafferty said that? He did, down on Baker Street. Right. Things like growing and selling marijuana, making moonshine, or faking a raffle to keep the profits for himself. Oh, really? So no one gets the prize, or he gets the prize, or Ah, there is no prize. There probably wasn't a prize. Yeah. The prize was just donating money to Bad Santa. Uh, And he did this with his church. Uh, I don't think he did that particular one with the church, no, because they didn't realise that he was shit. Ah. Yeah, must have been just sort of like a a freestyle, freelance kind of deal. Oh, yeah. Now, people in their motorcycle clubs knew Beasley had spent time in prison, but to Michael Rafferty, he seemed harmless enough and very even-tempered. So in 2003, when Michael's son Brogan Rafferty was eight years old and said he wanted to start going to church on Sundays, his dad said it was all right for him to go with Beasley. Michael Rafferty had raised Brogan by himself since the boy was three days old. His mother, Yvette, was a crack addict who, after being released from the hospital with her newborn son, took him out through the snow to a run-down crack house so she could go and get a fix. After Michael tracked her down, he took baby Brogan off her and he had been his primary caregiver ever since. Oh, baby Brogan. 
Yeah. Michael tried his best to raise his son, but he was a strict and sometimes violent father who had no time for Brogan acting anything other than manly and in control. Sounds like a pretty good parenting model. Not. Yeah. You're only mad at your kids if they don't make enough fart jokes. I really wanted that Voltron. You wanted it? Do you play with it when he's asleep? I do. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) For the next eight years, Beasley would come to the Rafferty house early on Sunday mornings to take Brogan to church. Sometimes Beasley would bring along Brogan's half-sister, Raina, who was three years younger than him. Brogan and Raina had the same mother, but Raina lived with her own father, as Yvette had never found a way to beat her crack addiction. After church, Beasley would buy the kids donuts or take them to McDonald's. He seemed like a kind, generous mentor figure to them, and Brogan felt more open and relaxed with him than he did with his own father. Did he bring them presents at Christmas time with the other two billion children? Yeah, he bought all the children presents for he was Santa. (laughs) Shitty double denim Santa. Now, uh, Beasley claimed to be a preacher and he even opened up a halfway house for the disenfranchised. There's a big butt here. We like big butts. I love big butts. And you cannot lie. No. All right, here it comes. But there was a much more sinister side to Beasley and his halfway house. Amy Seller, a former crack addict and sex worker, resided at the house on and off for two years. She came to stay with him because he told her his his mission was to save all the girls that are on the streets. Initially, she thought of him as a saviour who was trying to help her get back on the straight and narrow, but things soon changed. He began advertising the services of Amy and several other sex workers who stayed at the house online. He procured drugs for them and he'd drive them to meet John's. All for a nice cut of their earnings, of course. Oh, pimpin' Dick Beasley. Pimpin' bad Santa Dick Beasley. That's the guy. Wow. Beasley was arrested in Ohio on several drug-related charges in February 2011. While he was locked up, the police were working on building a prostitution case against him. He was released on bail in mid-July. His failure to check in with authorities in Texas, where he was still on parole for his earlier crimes, saw the state issue a warrant for his arrest, and he was deemed on the lam from the law. Oh, they're going to hunt down Pimpin' Dick. They will, but, and it's a very big but, another I cannot big, lie. <laughs> another big but, well, you need two big butts to make a whole butt, don't you? No, that would be two butts. Buttocks? Well, but talks. <laughs> Beasley decided the best way out of this was to assume a new identity. Ah, the Easter mm, Bunny. Yeah, yeah, the Tooth Fairy. And he began scoping out local homeless shelters on the lookout for someone who resembled him. This is where he met a man named Ralph Geiger who fit the bill. The two were similar in age, height and build, but Geiger had dark brown hair. For many years, Geiger had run a successful maintenance operation, but with the downturn in the economy, work had been so sparse he'd gone out of business. Oh, he did all that set design for the aliens. He yeah, drew yeah. All the aliens, he, didn't he got he? that weird vag Geiger? monster. That was him. Yeah. 56-year-old Geiger was staying at a homeless shelter while he was looking for work. Now, always quick to realise what people wanted to hear and lacking in scruples enough to lie through his teeth, Beasley made up a story about needing to employ someone as a caretaker for a farm a farm that didn't exist. Geiger, who had lived on a farm when he was younger, was delighted at the prospect of this opportunity. See, he's doing that serial killer thing where you prey on someone's vulnerability and give them hope. Kind of like the Moses Satole, but less He was a horrible cunt, wasn't he? Oh, he was really bad. We don't really talk about many nice people, though. (laughs) By this time, Brogan was a 16-year-old junior at Stowe Munro Falls High School. 
He was six foot five and weighed around 100 kilos or 220 pounds, and he was still growing. Wow. Yeah. He looked older than his years, and he had a somber and quiet demeanor, so much so that some people assumed he was mute. <laughs> I wish you were. Sorry. What? Well, how would that work with a podcast, though? I mean, if you thought this through, you <laughs> no, haven't, not really. have you? Not you really. Because you've got a butt for brains. Beasley had been a key figure in Brogan's life for eight years, so when he came to him telling him there was a warrant out for his arrest for a crime he didn't commit and he needed help or he'd go to prison for the rest of his life, Brogan agreed to help him any way he could. Well, he nodded. Yeah, well, he nodded. Whether Brogan knew that Beasley was planning to kill Geiger would later become a key point in his trial, and he told several versions of the story at different times. At trial, he told the jury he had no idea about the impending murder. He said that up until the events of August 9th, 2011, he thought Beasley was simply a very nice man. No, he's not. No. No, total asshole. No, pimping dick is bad. Oh, bad pimping dick. Worst kind. On the morning of August 9th, Beasley, calling himself Jack, introduced Geiger to Brogan, who he said was his nephew. It's hard to say Brogan. I want to say Bogan. Or Rogan. Or I want to say anything but Brogan. The plan, the plan was to drive out to the farm Beasley said he needed a caretaker for and show Geiger around. Brogan drove the two men down winding country roads in his old Buick. On the pretense of looking for something he'd lost while hunting, Beasley had Brogan pull over and he and Geiger got out of the car to look for it. Beasley walked in front of Geiger and let him follow him down a track into the forest. Then he looked confused and said they'd gone in the wrong direction. They turned around, which meant he was walking behind Geiger now. That's when Beasley pulled out his Ivor Johnson 22 semi-automatic pistol and shot Geiger in the back of the head. No. Yeah, surprise. Brogan later described the incident by saying, It was as if somehow I immediately slipped into a dream or something, like I had ice in my veins. From then on, he said he lived in a state of terror and anxiety, frightened that if he told anybody, he or a member of his family might be the next to be killed. So Brogan didn't tell anyone. As planned, Beasley stole Ralph Geiger's identity. He dyed his white Santa hair brown, stopped delivering presents at Christmas time, found a room to rent, and got a job at a company that made lift gates for trucks. But it didn't last long due to his like back injury and his paranoia that parole officers might somehow track him down. So he's not pimping Dick anymore, he's pimping Ralphie. Pimping Ralphie, that's right. true. Uh-huh. Right. But he needed money to live and the Geiger murder had gone so well, he decided to do it again, but this time for financial gain. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He had a very cunning plan. Beasley came up with the idea of putting an ad on Craigslist. He needed men who were looking for work but not completely destitute and still had things like vehicles and electrical appliances he could sell for cash. He'd pretend to be an employer with the power to change a man's life by granting him the job of a lifetime. The ad read, Wanted, caretaker for farm. Simply watch over a 688-acre patch of hilly farmland and feed a few cows. You get $300 a week and a nice two-bedroom trailer. Someone older and single preferred, but will consider all. Relocation a must. You must have a clean record and be trustworthy. The place is secluded and beautiful. It'll be a real getaway. For the right person, a job of a lifetime. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, it does if it existed. If you are ready to relocate, please contact ASAP. Position will not stay open. No, it certainly wouldn't. No, well, especially not since it never existed. When a woman applied for the job, Beasley wouldn't respond. 
When a man applied, he'd ask how old they were, whether they had a criminal record and if they were married. Um, some guys actually applied who had like military experience or were amazing at martial arts and he was just like, uh-uh, oh, no, no. oh hell no. <laughs> yeah, he was looking for a particular kind of guy. More than 100 people applied for the position, a fact that Beasley boasted about in his responses to the applicants to make them even more keen to snare the job. He had a clear idea of the kind of man he wanted, a middle-aged man who had never been married or was divorced and had no strong family commitments, someone who Beasley thought could disappear without being missed. 51-year-old divorcee David Pauley was the first applicant who met the criteria. He was unemployed and living with his brother Richard in his spare room in Norfolk, Virginia. Pauly had worked as a truck driver and warehouse manager for a wholesale distributor of building materials for 20 years, but he quit that job in 2003. Since then, he'd been unable to find steady work. He had married his high school sweetheart Susan, but they got divorced in 2009. He was very grateful to his brother and his sister-in-law for letting him stay with them, but he wanted a new life for himself with a good steady job and a place to call his own. Aww. Polly was looking for jobs online when he came across Beasley's Craigslist ad in October 2011. He normally looked for jobs around Norfolk, but his best friend from high school, Chris Maul, had moved to Ohio a couple of years earlier after getting divorced, and he seemed to like it there. Paulie and Maul talked dozens of times every day, so frequently, in fact, that they'd bought a pair of Nextel walkie-talkies just to communicate with each other on. Hey, buddy, what's up? Yeah, nothing. Uh, nothing much, buddy. Just just waking up. Uh, I think that's so cute. It is. I wish I had a friend like that. Yeah, but you don't because you're a cunt. What? Living in Ohio would mean that they could both hang out together for reals. And they could do a podcast and learn to hate each other. Um, after some correspondence <laughs> where Beasley learned poorly fit the criteria, divorced, no kids, no criminal record, and willing to start right away, he was told that he had the job. After the news, Richard remembers his younger brother being happier than he'd seen him in months. He called his best friend Maul on the walkie-talkie and started excitedly telling him that this was the best thing that had ever happened to him in his life and he couldn't wait to go. Maul was so happy his friend's fortunes appeared to be turning that he actually cried. Aw, that's beautiful. They made a plan to go fishing the first weekend that Paulie was there. Next, Paulie called his twin sister, Deb. She told him that she didn't like the thought of him sitting alone on some farm for Christmas and made him promise that he'd come visit her in Maine over the holidays. He told her that his new boss was a preacher and said he felt like the Lord was finally pointing him towards a place where he might find peace. Later, Paulie went to the men's Bible study group he'd been going to since he'd moved into his brother's house. The group unanimously agreed that God had finally heard his prayers. The church gave Paulie $300 from its Helping Hands Fund so that he could rent a U-Haul trailer. He packed up all of his things, his model trains, his books, his NASCAR memorabilia, and the small box containing the ashes of his old cat, Maxwell Edison, and started driving to Ohio. Maxwell Edison, he had the ashes of his cat. What yeah, a sweet man. I know, he was a very sweet man. Aww. I mean, taking the ashes of your cat with you kind yeah. of proves that. Yeah. Maul tried calling Polly on his walkie-talkie several times after he arrived, but there was no response. He called Richard and got the number for Polly's new employer, Jack. Beasley was going by the name Jack, who told him that everything was okay. Polly was just busy with chores. Pimpin' dick Ralphie Jack. That's him. After a few more days and no contact from Polly, Maul called Jack again. 
This time Jack said that when he showed up at the farm that day, Paulie had packed all of his things in a truck and said he was leaving to go work on a drilling rig in Pennsylvania. Ah, uh, bike or bullshit. Ugh, big time. Maul smelt something fishy and he knew there was no way Paulie would go do something like that without talking to him about it. Uh, that smells worse than the ugly tuna saluna. It does indeed. For those of you who've been listening to the Comeback podcast, like us, it's it's great. It's about the disappearance of um, Brian Schaefer, but he was last seen at a bar called the Ugly Tuna Saluna, and Barney's decided that that's a euphemism for vagina, and now we all have to live with that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I told the host, Nick West, about it, and now he has to live with it too. <laughs> so good luck keeping a straight face on that one, Nick. <laughs> anyway, Ugly Tuna Saluna. Maul and Paulie had been best friends since high school when they'd bonded over their dislike of playing sport and their love of cars. Over the years, they'd moved to different cities, gotten married and divorced, but they'd stayed in touch pretty much every single day. Well, that's the kind of best friend you want, really. You go through life and they're always going to be there for you. Yeah. Sometimes you mightn't see them for a while, and but you just take up where you, where, where you left off. That's, yeah... Absolutely. Hey, Chris and Kel. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they kept their walkie-talkies on their bedside tables and called each other before they even got up in the morning. They talked approximately 50 times a day. Most people couldn't figure out how we had so much to talk about, Maul said, but they'd always end up being something. But as soon as Paulie reached Ohio, there had been nothing but silence. In early November, two weeks after he'd last spoken to Paulie, Maul called his twin sister. Deb hadn't been in contact with him either and was also worried. She'd already spent several days online looking for clues to explain why she hadn't heard a word from her brother. She remembered he'd said the farm was located in the town of Cambridge and googled the local paper, the Daily Jeffersonian. She read through the pages until she landed on the November 8th headline, Man says he was lured here for work, then shot. Well, that sounds strikingly familiar, doesn't it? It really does. Also, the article went on to say that he'd been hired to work on a 688-acre ranch. Ah, uh, that number, 688 yeah, acre. Yeah, not a lot of those. Deb called the Noble County Sheriff straight away and found out about Scott Davis, the man who'd been shot and escaped. Ooh. Yeah, because she was like, "Hey, this this is like this sounds like the same ad. I'm pretty sure this is the job that her brother Paulie was sure, going for." Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, Beasley had indeed murdered Paulie and quickly burned through the money he got from selling his stuff. That's why he'd already lined up another victim. Before Scott Davis had even left for Ohio, he told Beasley that he'd won a bid on an awesome storage unit that contained a flat screen TV, a computer, some landscaping equipment and a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Ooh, a hog. Yup. Beasley told his big little friend Brogan that he thought he could make $30,000 from this murder. Oh, pimp and dick, you greedy bastard. That's the one. 48-year-old Scott Davis had answered the job on Craigslist on October 9th, 2011. Davis had left his girlfriend behind in South Carolina, packed his clothes, tools, stereo equipment and Harley-Davidson into a trailer and driven his truck with it to Ohio. He told everyone that he was moving to take up the job of a lifetime and was thrilled because it meant he'd be able to help take care of his sick mother who lived outside of Akron. Oh, another decent man. Yeah, with, with noble goals who thinks that he's finally had a stroke of luck in oh. a period of his life when he wasn't experiencing any. Wow. 
Beasley, going by the name of Jack, of course, and Brogan, who he introduced as his nephew, had met Davis for breakfast at the Shoney's in Marietta. Here, Jack had asked a lot of questions about what Davis had bought with him in his trailer. Davis told him that it was full from top to bottom. After breakfast, Davis followed Jack and Brogan to the Food Centre Emporium, where he left his truck and trailer in the parking lot to pick up later. Jack had told Davis that the rundown road leading up to the farm had split and they'd have to repair it before they could bring the truck up. A busted road, eh? Busted road to an imaginary farm. Diabolical. So diabolical. They'd been driving for about 15 minutes, the paved road giving way to dirt, while Davis watched the signal strength bars on his mobile phone disappear completely. So they were out of the service area. Then on a thickly wooded hilly stretch, Jack told his nephew to pull over. He explained to Davis that he'd left some equipment down the hill and they'd need to retrieve it to repair the road. Davis got out of the car to help his new employer. He followed Jack down the hill, but when they reached a patch of wet grass by the creek, Jack seemed to have gone the wrong way and said they needed to head back up the road. Davis turned around and started walking back the way they'd come, with Jack following behind him. We've heard this before, haven't we? We certainly have. Davis heard a click and turned around to see Beasley pointing a gun at his head. Fuck, Beasley said after realising it had jammed. Davis put his arms up in front of his face. As he heard a gunshot, he felt his right elbow shatter. He turned and ran as fast as he could over the uneven ground. Beasley kept firing at him as Davis ran deeper into the woods, falling down and getting up and falling down again. But luckily, no more shots hit him. So it just jammed the one time and then it worked again, the the pistol. Sure. He ran and ran until he came to a road and crossed it, worried that if he stayed in the open, he'd be dead for sure. He headed towards the creek and jumped into it, hoping that the water would mean his scent would be lost if Jack and his nephew, Beasley of course and Brogan, tried to hunt him down with tracking dogs. Davis was an experienced like country dude and hunter and I think that really helped him in his thinking on, on how to survive. He hid in the river for several hours, bleeding profusely from his shattered elbow. Realising he would bleed out and die there, possibly never to be found, if he didn't keep moving, Mm. he summoned all of his strength and started walking. There's a lot of bone and cartilage in your elbow. That would have been been extremely painful. You know how it feels if you bump your funny bone? Like you want to kind of faint and throw up at the same time? Imagine that times infinity. So Davis had to walk for seven miles, which is over 10 kilometres, until he found a farmhouse where the occupants called 911 for him. Sheriff Stephen Hannam would later describe Davis as remarkably coherent for a man who'd been shot and was bleeding heavily. Davis said he'd come to the area for a job, watching over the 688-acre cattle ranch, and that the man who'd offered him the job had shot him. But Sheriff Hunnam knew there weren't any 688-acre cattle ranches in Noble County. Um, that's because most of the land had been bought up by the mining companies. Davis kept going I on... I knew that. <sighs> Davis kept going on about a Harley Davidson and how the guy who shot him was probably going to steal it. The sheriff sized up scruffy-looking, long-haired Davis and figured he was involved in some kind of drug deal that had gone bad. That's not good police work. That's pretty bad police work. Beasley didn't take Davis's escape as a wake-up call. He had plans for the money he thought he'd make off him, and so he set about lining up another victim. What, did he need a new sleigh? After the police found Davis's truck and trailer where he said he'd parked them, they started to take his story more seriously, but they didn't act fast enough to save Beasley's fourth victim. 
On Sunday, November 13th, a week after Davis's escape, Beasley and Brogan picked up a man named Timothy Kern in the parking lot outside of a pizza joint in Canton. 47-year-old Kern was divorced, had recently lost his job as a street cleaner and was living in an old car that was hardly even roadworthy. Uh, that's when they make street cleaning digital. Yeah, that's what they did. They use they no, used they, fingers. They finger bang the streets. That sounds like a really good point. Um, so <laughs> Kern was dirt broke, oh, really well, skinny. Yeah. yeah. Another vulnerable person that uh, pimp and dick can take advantage of, I, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Beasley had already asked Kern what he was bringing with him, and while they were driving out to the imaginary farm in Brogan's old Buick, he asked if he'd bought the computer and flat screen TV that he said he had. Kern said that no, he decided to leave them behind with his sons, Zach and Nick. All Kern had bought with him was an old TV and a couple of garbage bags full of clothes and cassette tapes. Everything he owned fit easily in the back of Brogan's car. Yeah, well, why would you need a laptop? You wouldn't get internet coverage. Or uh, maybe he wanted in, to write a, a novel. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. Maybe he wanted to put the pictures from his phone onto his computer. Maybe he wanted to learn Photoshop. Yeah, he might have. I could teach him. He might have wanted to listen to iTunes. <laughs> podcasts. Oh, podcasts. I've heard of those. What are they? Ah, oh, they're terrible. You wouldn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> Brogan later said um, that at that point, I'm realising that I'm about to help Beasley do this for no reason at all. The man literally had $5 in his pocket. Uh, the waste. Yeah. Really, really, really. Something that really... <laughs> Well, I like saying that word. Something that really resonated with Brogan was that Kern had given everything that he had of value to his sons, uh, who were only slightly older than Brogan was. He kind of looked at him and thought, oh, this guy's a really good dad. Yeah, like they're like 21, 22? Um, 19 because... and 21. Oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Kern's marriage had broken up and he was unable to find work in his field as a sound engineer. Well, I could give him some work. Yeah, we could. Um, yeah. Also, a lot of um, a lot of weed dealers are sound engineers, so I could give him some work too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, he lived with his parents for a few years, but his father kicked him out, and after that he lived in his car. But he was still very close with his sons, Zach and Nick. He was in constant contact with them, and his boys knew to always answer his texts promptly so that he didn't get his feelings hurt. The night before he left for Ohio, Kern's son Nick had texted him before going to a party. He said, I love you, I miss you, I'm proud of you, good luck. Beasley had had Brogan dig a grave the night before in a different wooded area to the others. He'd done a half-assed job of it. It was barely two feet deep, but Beasley didn't seem to care too much about things like that anymore. As they were driving toward the imaginary farm, Beasley asked Brogan to pull over to the side of the road, telling Kern that they'd been there squirrel hunting earlier and he'd lost his watch. Put his hand up a squirrel and lost his watch. Well, if you can think of a better way to lose your watch, I'd like to hear it. <laughs> it's also how you can find watches. Really? If you put your hand up a squirrel and someone previously lost their watch up there, when you pull your hand out, you're wearing a watch. Oh, wow. That, is that how you get a new watch? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only way I've ever had a watch. <laughs> It's also how I've lost most of the watches I own. Right. Is there another big butt coming up? <laughs> <laughs> Always. Kern, having no reason to think his life was in danger, followed Beasley into the woods. Brogan kept his distance and then heard a pop. He said, I turned around and Mr. Kern is on his knees, kind of holding the side of his head, and Beasley is saying to him, Are you all right? 
Beasley shot him again. I think he shot him three times in the head. The gentleman was still breathing. So Beasley went up and got the gun close to him and he shot him again. And I said, he's still alive. And he said, his brain's dead. There's no way. He's got four bullets in his head and I put one between his eyes. Wow, this guy's brutal, isn't he? He's I'm, got no feeling. He's a psychopath, clearly. Ask him, him if he's all right. What he's really asking him... You all right? Are you dead yet? Yeah, it actually reminded me... Do I me have of, to shoot you again? Are you dead? Yeah, pretty much. But <laughs> it, the, that kind of um, way of saying it reminded me of Chopper Reed a bit. Yeah. You are right there, Keithy? Yeah, right there, Keithy? Yeah, you are right. Like, he'd say things like that to people yeah, who stabbed. Right. So once Kern was dead, like all of Beasley's victims, they emptied his wallet with five bucks in it and they buried him. After picking up Scott Davis five days earlier, Sheriff Hannam and his team had been following up on, on his bizarre story, but not all that urgently. They had Davis's explanation about the Craigslist ad, and they'd located security camera footage from his breakfast meeting with his employer. But Paulie's twin sister Deb's phone call forced Hannam's investigation into top gear. Oh, good. About time. Yeah, I mean, like, finally, you're going to get around to it, are you? The next day, the sheriff's office called an FBI cybercrime specialist to help them get information about who had written the Craigslist ad. They had also sent a crew with cadaver dogs to do 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 cadaver dogs do 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 to the area of the woods where Davis had been shot. <laughs> a few hours before dark, the investigators found a patch of dug-up soil covered with tree branches. They began digging there until they found blood seeping up from the wet earth and uncovered a socked foot. I hope the socks were as cool as the ones we got sent by Cricket. The body they discovered was face down, and one of the things they took from it was a corded black leather bracelet with a silver clasp. The detectives phoned Deb and described the bracelet. Uh, She said, yes, that it was her brother, Paulie's. Oh, a bit more was heartbroken. Was that his friend's? His friend's name, Maul? Maul. Those walkie-talkies would have seemed so quiet. Yeah, he would have looked at that walkie-talkie over there on the shelf. Waiting for it to crackle, but it never did. Oh, my God. That would have been Mm, so sad. Sad. The investigators also found a second grave, but this one was empty. They later learned that it had been dug especially for Davis, who'd escaped. Uh, Go, Davis. Yeah, yeah, seriously. He got lucky and then he he had good instincts. Well, his arm wrestling career is well and truly over, though. Well, only if he's right-handed. Didn't think about that, did you? No, because you just think about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Now the authorities finally knew that they were looking for a murderer. A few days later, they identified the man in the breakfast meeting footage as Richard Beasley, slimy Dick Beasley. Pimpin' Dick. Additionally, the cybercrime specialist had received enough information from Craigslist to trace the IP address of the ad's originating computer to a small house in Akron. When the investigators arrived at the house, its owner said that he'd never written any ads on Craigslist or posted them, and he didn't know anyone named Richard Beasley or Jack. I ain't no pimpin' dick. Exactly. But when they showed him a picture, he recognised the man. Oh, I do know him. It was someone he knew as Ralph Geiger, who until recently had rented a room from him. That's Ralphie. That was Ralphie. Well, apparently. Geiger had left his new mobile number. So yeah, Beasley assuming the identity of Geiger. Yeah, Ralphie. The landlord called Beasley and kept him on the line as investigators traced the call. On November 16th, an did, F... Did they triangulate the mobile signals from different towers? Well, of course they did. Good. If you can think of a better way of doing it, you should call the FBI now. Well, maybe I will. On November 16th, an FBI SWAT team arrested Richard Beasley outside another Akron house where he'd been renting a room. 
Tracking down the teenager who'd been with Beasley when he drove Scott Davis out into the woods proved to be very easy. There weren't that many giant high schoolers named Brogan living in the area. A detective and an FBI agent drove to the school and interviewed Brogan in the principal's office while another set of investigators searched his house. That evening, police arrived with a warrant and took him into custody. Brogan admitted his involvement to investigators on tape and he told them everything that Beasley had done, told him all about the murders and where to find the bodies. Although Beasley thought the men he attacked wouldn't be missed, they all had family and friends that attended the trial to support them. Of course, everyone leaves a trail, man. It's yeah. yeah, there is no one that won't be missed, so don't kill anyone. Yeah. Good well, advice? It is good advice. Good. In November 2012, a jury convicted Brogan Rafferty of two dozen criminal counts, including murder, robbery and kidnapping. The judge said that Rafferty had been dealt a lousy hand in life, but that he had embraced the evil and sentenced him to life without parole. I actually don't think that's fair. Brogan Rafferty, hey? Yeah, he was 16 Mm. years old at the time. This guy had been a big influence on him since he was eight uh, I don't think mm. I don't. I kind don't... of reminds me of what was his name? Brendan oh, from Brendan. Making a Murderer. Yeah, he just wanted to watch WrestleMania. Well, I don't think that Brogan was um was quite as touched. Simple, perhaps. Yeah. I don't want to be mean to Brendan. I have um, a lot of sympathy for him, but yeah. Brogan seemed a bit cluier. Let yeah. me just put it that way. Um, but I also don't feel like he, he thought he had a lot of options. His mum's a crack addict. His dad is emotionally distant and generally busy. And, like, even when he was five years old, he would, like, get himself ready for school and eat cereal and take himself to school because his dad would be at work. Like, he spent his whole life sort of raising himself and being alone and then he suddenly has someone who's a big influence. That happens to plenty of kids and, well, unfortunately, but when something bad like this happens, you have to be brave about it and step up and do the right thing. Yeah, but Beasley, to him, had probably been the person who was his support person who he would tell about yeah, things. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Tara? It is a really tough one. I just think considering his age and the fact that he came clean about everything, I feel like maybe having parole on the table down the track in 30 years or something, I think yeah. that sounds more fair to me. I don't know. There's a lot of bodies there. There were three, and that's three too many. Yeah. In April 2013, Richard Beasley was also convicted of murder and being a shit Santa and was sentenced to death. Throughout his trial, he maintained that he was innocent. Both Beasley and Rafferty are appealing. Well, not to me, Tara. No, (laughs) appealing their convictions, fool. Which I I really do hope that... um, that Rafferty, Brogan Rafferty, um, gets gets a shot at getting a, a slightly different sentence. Uh, as for Beasley, hang the bastard, I don't care. So he's going to be on death row for a while, I guess. Oh, my God, yeah, yeah. I think the average time is 17 years, but we've covered cases where they've been on death row for mm. like 28 years. So who yeah. even knows? He'll probably just have a heart attack or something else well, before get, that happens. Mm, eat a sandwich and get shivved in the shower maybe. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind um, nominating this guy for a bit of a shower shiving. Yeah. So yeah, that was a nice, fun story. I hope Dexter likes that one. De- no, Dexter is not here. <laughs> Dexter, by the way, Dexter. What did you think, Dex? What did you think, Dex? Come over here and tell us what you thought. No, he's actually gone upstairs to his room. Yeah, um, he doesn't. He doesn't listen or hear any of this stuff. We were kidding. <laughs> I think it's interesting that these men didn't see it coming. Yeah, well, they're a lot less um, kind of conscious of being prey than women are. Women, yeah. even if you do say, oh, the road's bad, you've got to get in this car with two guys, I think most women would probably be like, 
no thanks, I'm right. Yeah. You know, they would think about it. They might have um, Googled the area and seen there weren't any farms. But it's just because they're, they're preying on men who, who aren't sort of looking at this in the context of being a potential victim. They were able to really get away with it mm, because these guys just really didn't consider themselves to be in any danger. And they were really excited about, you know, the future because of this imaginary job. Mm. Nasty stuff. Well said. Well said. So, Barney. Yes, Tara. Do you know what time it is? It's about uh, 4.30. No, do you know what time it is? Oh, it's true crime nerd time. Yes. What is that, Barney? Please tell. Well. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song. Uh, art, a potato that looks like Jeffrey Dahmer. Or just about anything <laughs> yep. that has scratched your true crime itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, we'll read it out. See our website for details, or send it to bloodymurderpodcast.gmail.com. Yeah. It'll be in the notes of the show. We Any have one. Any of those things. We have one. Hey. This is from My Recurrent Psychosis in Chicago. Hey, I like that handle. Perhaps it is part of the human condition that we cannot analyze or explain that which frightens us. We will never understand why people like Vacha arise to bring chaos and violence into a world that we struggle to keep orderly and safe. We cannot account for the source of that impulse. We can only study it and try to keep it at bay. These are the last three sentences of the epilogue to Douglas Starr's The Killer of Little Shepherds, my second most favourite true crime book. I have read this book, an account of the 19th century serial killings by Frenchman Joseph Vacher, a total of 27 times in counting. Oh, wow. Vacher, also known as the French Ripper, and occupying a similar psychological space in France as Jack the Ripper in England, murdered between 11 and 27 people in the French countryside between 1894 and 1897. Born of a combination of unrequited love and brain damage from a failed murder-suicide attempt, Avache's modus operandi involved stabbing, disemboweling, raping and sodomizing his victims, many of whom were shepherds keeping an eye on their flock in isolated fields. Oh... But The Killer of Little Shepherds is not a story about Vacher. Not Vacher alone, at least. This true crime book is an account of the birth of forensic science and how the Belle Epoque sought to investigate the shadows of the human condition. Prosecutor Emile Fouquet and renowned criminologist Dr. Alexander Lacassange hunted not just Vacher but the truth of the nature of insanity and its reckoning in the pursuit of justice. Anyone who is interested in forensics and is an admirer of luminaries such as Sir Bernard Spilsbury must absolutely read The Killer of Little Shepherds. Well, thank you, my recurrent psychosis from Chicago. I love your name. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Wow, uh, good work with all those like $10 words too. That's a lot of French stuff to pronounce there. Well, the thing is, you know, you shouldn't give shit to people who can't pronounce stuff. It's because they've read it and not heard it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know this. Mm. <laughs> if only the rest of the world could catch on. Yeah. So True Crime Nerd Time, send your piece in to bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, we would love to hear from you because hey, we're always on the lookout for new awesome true crime recommendations. Not, not only will we read it out or play it, we'll put it up on our website too. Yeah, we will indeed. Mm. As we did with the one last week. Yep. David Simon. That's right. 
Hey, so we've been lucky enough to be nominated for two Australian podcasting awards. One of them is in the most popular category. How we got nominated is because of our lovely listeners voting for us. That's right. And the only way that we're going to have a chance of winning this thing is if we get more votes. So if you've already voted for us, those votes count. But if you're thinking about doing it, and you haven't yet, can you please vote for us? Because that's how we're going to be able to let this freak flag fly. Well said, Tara. And tell your housemates and your friends and family to vote for us too. That's at www.australianpodcastawards.com. I think there's only three Ws there. Well, okay, probably. Also, we have links to this on our website. And there are links in the notes of this show. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, if you could take a minute to do it, you do have to make a login, but they don't spam you. Also, our friends from Fallon and True Crime Island are also nominated, and you're allowed to vote for more than one. So So vote for Cambo and Broad as well. Yeah, vote for all three of us. Let's let's make it an indie win this one, not someone that has, like, a lot of support behind them from an organisation. Yeah. Let's vote for the underdogs. That's right. And those that, those friends of ours, they're our podcast Nomage Natoire. Oh, they really are, and we love them dearly. Well, what do we used to call it? Nomage na Myrtle. <laughs> <laughs> That's because of our Voodoo Raymond episode. Oh, yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, anyway, you know what I'd really like to hear right about now? What's that, Tara? I'd like to hear your murder story, please. Murder. We can't do it. We I love- can do Baz. Murder. Nah, he says it. Baz Henderson on Extraordinary murder. Stories says it far more charismatically than either of us put together. How are you? I'm well. Murder? No, nah, I can't. No, nah, I, I just I sound like a dick. All right. I'm going to talk about Daniel Camargo Barbosa. Daniel Camargo Barbosa was born January 22, 1930, into a wealthy family who lived in a small village in the Colombian Andes. His father, Daniel Camargo Brasina, was a local businessman. His mother, Teresa Barbosa, was his father's second wife. I briefly went out with a Colombian guy, and what I learned from that is that Colombia is known for coffee, cocaine, and Shakira. Camargo also had an older half-sister born from his father's first marriage. Now, Tara, per Spanish naming customs, Colombian people have two last names. The first surname is the first of the father and the second surname the first of the mother. In most cases, the paternal surname, Camargo in this case, is the only one used in daily life. Ah, okay. I thought I'd just clear that up. When Camargo was two years old, his mother died and his father, being a heartless cunt, quickly remarried. Camargo was a smarty pants and did well in his studies. Later, he was found to have an IQ of 116. Is that high? I wouldn't know. I'm not that smart. Yeah, me either. His father was not impressed, though, and would not talk to or spend any time with his son. In fact, whenever Camargo tried to reach out to his father, he would bash him and tell Camargo he was useless and not worth his time. Well, I guess if you want to raise a serial killer, it's a good way to go about parenting. Camargo kept trying, though, to connect with his dad. 
But eventually he got the message and, and avoided his father and lost any interest in connecting with him. Probably for the best. It was at this time he decided to perfect his newfound ability to lie and manipulate people, getting what he wanted and using it as a means to keep his father at arm's length. Since his father was emotionally distant and more into running his business and parenting, Camargo's childhood was influenced heavily by his stepmother, Dia Salina Ferdinand's. I hope she was nice. She wasn't. Oh. She was just a teenager when she married a much older Prisano, and she was obsessed with the idea of having a daughter, which was a bit shit for her, especially when she found that her womb was a rocky place with no seed able to take purchase. So she was um, infertile? Yes, she, okay. yes, she was unable to bear children. Right, okay, yeah. She doted on her stepdaughter while abusing her stepson, Camargo, who she would punish for having a dick by dacking him and hitting him on the ass with a bullwhip. Ah, uh, not cool. Um, also, dacking, sometimes called pantsing. It, it's the act of pulling down someone's pants in front of others to embarrass them by showing them your button genitals. Not yeah, cool. Not cool. This caused Camargo to develop some violent tendencies of his own and for him to constantly get into a wee bit of biffo at school. This appalled and embarrassed his stepmother, who punished him by taking away his pants altogether what? and forcing him to wear girls' dresses. Oh, we've covered things like this before. If someone's forced into drag so that people laugh at them, it can really warp them. Not a yeah, good thing to do to anyone. Yeah. I mean, if someone's into drag, oh my God. So go voluntary drag's all right? Oh, voluntary drag is the best. Come mm. on. Well, Dragula, RuPaul's Drag Race, I'll be all fine the drag then. queens. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, a good way to build a serial killer is to force him into drag. Yeah, also oh. like doing stuff to make like guys hate women. We, you don't need to do that. Enough of them have that uh, already. You don't need yeah. to like, you know, well, put so- it in a Petri dish and raise it. That's right. Well, I mean, sexual identity is so important important to kids. Ah, and being belittled and humiliated Mm. just warps everything. Well, Tara, if that wasn't bad enough, she would then invite his schoolmates to come over and look at him. They would point and laugh. This old shit show did not make him popular at school. Nobody wanted tickets to the Camargo show. Well, unless he was wearing a dress. It is no surprise that he was a frequent victim of bullying and is probably the reason why Camargo came to hate women. Yeah, seriously, there's enough of that already. Don't help someone. I don't like this lady. I feel like she might have helped create a monster. Well, she did. In the early 1940s, his distant and abusive father sent him to a prestigious all-male Catholic boarding school in Bogota. What could go wrong? Well, I'm assuming there were pants there, so that's a start of good stuff. Well, actually, Tara, it went well. Hey, good. Away from his crappy family, Camargo made friends and excelled academically. But this story is not going to end well, so his plans to continue studying came to a grinding halt when his whole family was hit by some very crappy economic hardship during La Valencia. Oh, uh, what was that? Like a recession or...? Well, I'll tell you, Tara. Okay. Between 1948 and 1958, Colombia erupted into civil war, causing a scene of widespread and systematic political violence known as La Valencia. And it's not an orange. Yes, or a lack of oranges. An estimated 200,000 people were killed during this period, which mostly occurred in rural areas. Okay. Rural? The rural? The country areas. Uh, Country areas? (sighs) I know. I roll. $240 fine. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. I'm female. $500 fine. Put it in white type, cunt. It was whispered on that word. (laughs) 
So Kamaga was forced to drop out of school and get a job as a door-to-door salesman to support his family. That's a shame. It sounded like the one place where he was happy. Yeah. But being the silver-tongued devil, he found that it was easy to con people into letting him into their homes and getting them to buy his shit. That's a salesman. In 1957, he started a whirlwind relationship with Lacera Castilla, and they moved in together only after a few dates. What could possibly go wrong? Due to the Civil War, no one was buying his wares anymore. Broke and unable to pay the rent, Camargo tried to make some extra pesos by robbing a shop. But he was a shitty robber. (laughs) That's a big but. And he was arrested a few hours later and sent to a minimum security prison for petty theft. It was all right, though. Yeah? Hmm. For Camargo had a plan. Causing a distraction, Camargo took a clipboard from a desk and pretended to work there. And after a while, he just walked out. Yeah, if you're holding a clipboard, you're clearly meant to be there and you're annoyed that you're there and you're working and so clipboards are the way. They are. He returned home and resumed his life as if nothing had happened. Well, so back to the same address, under the same name, just... They're just not going to follow it up. They really didn't, and I think that's because of the Civil War thing going on. Oh, yeah, they probably had other things to think about. Yeah, bigger fish to fry. Mm-hmm. Hmm. In 1962, Camargo met a woman named Esperanza, and he fell wildly in love with her and decided to dump Castillo, deserting her and their two young children. I think they dodged a bullet. Oh, they did. I mean, it's not cool, but from what you said uh, earlier, I'm, I'm guessing that was a good thing for them. He was smitten and proposed to Esperanza. She said yes, and they were now engaged. Hooray! Congratulations! But Camargo became upset when he found out that she wasn't a virgin and later found out she had been stepping out on him. He actually came home to find her in their bed with another man. Okay, it's not cool to step out on anyone, but she could have still been like a virgin. Maybe it was just gobbies and anal. (laughs) You always say that, Tara. (laughs) Well, or things that I'm looking for in a person. Camargo wanted to end the engagement at first, but he had it bad. Using his mad skills at manipulation, he convinced her that she had let him down and that she could make it up to him by growing back her hymen. (laughs) After this proved impossible... Well, at the time... He talked her into procuring virgin girls for him to bang the hymens out of. He would take their virginity in her place. Saying yes to this awful idea... Esperanza lured five young girls to their apartment and roofied them with some roofies. Bit of a Cosby, huh? Yeah. Camargo then raped them while they were unconscious. So, what do you want to do tonight, honey? I just want to put on my uh, my knitted sweater that's really colourful and has patterns on it, and I want to go out and find you those virgins that you deserve. Well, i got a pocket full of roofies. <laughs> I think we have a plan. Ugh, Yuck. Oh, I know. Oh, no. They did this another four times over the next two years. It all came unstuck in 1964 when their fifth victim realised what had happened to her and reported them to the police. The horrible, rapey couple was arrested and Camargo was initially sentenced to three years in prison. This outraged another judge, (laughs) who increased it to eight years. Well... Did Esperanza get any time that you know of? Not that I could find, actually. Okay, because she sounds pretty damn complicit in that operation. Absolutely. Camargo still considered himself a victim and, learning from his past mistakes, decided that when he raped a girl, the next time she would have to die. Isn't it funny how they usually think of themselves as victims, serial killers? They really feel like, oh, everything's against me and I'm doing the right thing. How dare I be arrested for... Raping young girls, yeah. After serving his eight years, he was released. 
He decided a change of scenery was in order and moved to Brazil. But Brazil didn't care for the ugly, rapey Camargo. He Go, was a- Brazil. <laughs> Go Brazil. Go <laughs> Brazil. He was arrested for illegal immigration in 1973 and was deported back to Colombia. Camargo then began to work as a street vendor selling televisions. That'd be difficult back then in the 60s because TVs would have weighed a ton. And they were huge. Yeah, massive. On May 2, 1974, Camargo was walking in front of a school in Bangraquilla when he saw a nine-year-old girl and the rapey cog started turning in his ugly rapey head. He lured her to a secluded area, raped her and strangled her, leaving the body there along with the TV sets that he was carrying. The following day, Camargo returned to deal with disposing of the body and to grab his TVs. Not a smart move. As police were there, they had set a trap for him and he was arrested. Good. He was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Yes. His prison was the unescapable Gorgona, an island situated 35 kilometres off Colombia's Pacific coast. But... Mm. And it's a big butt. Oh, well, I like big butts. You do. Ten years into his sentence, Camargo happened upon a rowboat on the beach. Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. He's in prison for 30 years and he gets to go to the beach? What did they give him, like a bathing suit, some little floaties and, like, I don't know, a bucket and spade to make sandcastles with? Yeah, my daiquiri has gone warm. Bring me a, another cord one. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, and there was a butler, obviously. Well, there was a butler, yeah. Um. Oh, is it because like they just let him roam on this tiny island? Well, or yeah, they couldn't escape. <laughs> okay. Well, good. And then I hope that an octopus drowned him. Anyway, Camargo happened upon a rowboat on the beach. It was a leaky boat and probably wouldn't stay afloat. He was a poet and didn't know it. <laughs> Had a boat and couldn't row it. <laughs> Wrong. He jumped in and started rowing. The sea was angry that day. <laughs> the weather started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. If it wasn't for the constant rowing of Camargo, he would have been lost. On G- Gilligan's Island, right? Oh, yes, so what I did there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After a full day of rowing through shark-infested waters, he reached the mainland. He was quite wet and tired and hungry. The prison reported his escape but the authorities assumed he died at sea since they believed that the currents were too treacherous and the storm too bad to survive. You know what's really shit, though, is, like, that was a great opportunity for nature or the universe to just, like, take him down. Yeah. Yeah, like, swallow ocean, be vengeful and swallow down that cunt, right? The pr- <laughs> Swallow down that cunt. <laughs> I know. When I say it, it's a big deal. When you say it, everyone's oh, like, no. whatever. It just made me laugh. What can I say? <laughs> the press even ran stories about how Camargo had been eaten by sharks. In truth, the sharks have better taste. <laughs> and smart-ass Camargo spent the preceding years in prison studying the sea currents and reading books about navigation. Oh, I prefer my rapey serial killers to be stupid. Yeah, this one's not, unfortunately. Oh, damn it. As soon as he landed, he ran as fast as his rapey legs would carry him south towards the Ecuadorian border. Daniel Barbosa Camargo was the first prisoner to ever escape what had been called the Colombian version of Alcatraz. Well, also, some guys did escape from Alcatraz. Well, they say. they. No, I think they proved it. Have they? Yeah, yeah. I watched a show on it and I read some articles and they, they actually, they're pretty sure they probably escaped. Hmm, interesting. 
Camargo went on to commit at least 55 more rapes and murders oh. of both young girls and adult women between 1984 and 1986. Now I'm angry at the ocean for not eating him when it had a chance. Yeah, the ocean was not angry enough. Oh, it was not nearly angry enough. It didn't know the facts. During this period, Camargo survived by working as a porter in the markets or selling clothing and objects taken from his victims. He also sold ballpoint pens. Oh, right. I bought a pen from a serial killer and all I got was this lousy pen. No, I don't think that works. No. <laughs> Police initially believed the murders were the work of organised crime, while many rumours pointed to white slavery rings or satanic cults. Ah, oh, yeah, blame Satan because people couldn't possibly... Camargo mostly targeted peasants, maids and students transitioning from primary school to college. He would approach them pretending he was a foreigner who needed to find a church located on the outskirts of town. Well, okay. His lie was supported by Camargo's educated vocabulary and his fluency in English and Portuguese. She's on barely fluent in English. Oh, well, I liked how you got all those words out. Also, he's in Ecuador, not right. Like, he's not in Colombia. Yeah, Because that's, that's a right. very Catholic country. I'm not sure about Ecuador. He would then offer a reward to the girls if they would show him the way to the church. So he's preying on their vulnerabilities, as these people do. Yeah. Most of the locations where the actual murders took place were remote and forested. Camargo would threaten the victims with a blade and rape them in a secluded spot before killing them in a variety of ways, such as strangulation and stabbing, hacking, slashing with a machete. Mm. One adult woman who struck him in the head with a rock while he was raping her enraged him so much that he decapitated her on the spot and threw the head away. Well, she was just doing what the rest of us were thinking, right? Yeah. Another victim was gutted with her lungs, kidneys and heart extracted. After killing his victims, Camargo would steal their clothes and any valuables on their body before leaving the bodies to be eaten by scavengers. He always carried a second shirt so that he could change his bloody clothes and whenever his hands got bloodied, he would wash the blood away by pissing on them. Oh my God, he pissed away the murder blood? He did. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's the name of my fourth album. <laughs> pissed away the murder blood? <laughs> no, it's not, actually. He memorised any details about the victims that he could remember, even trivial ones like scars, tattoos and moles. Sometimes he even got the phone number of their families and called them after the crime to taunt them. Ah, oh, that's the lowest of the low. Good news, Tara. Yeah? Really? Because I'm not expecting any right about now. Camargo was arrested on February 26, 1986, by two policemen after he was found in possession of bloody clothes stolen from his last victim, Elizabeth Telpez. The suitcase he had the clothes in happened to contain a copy of Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Well, he was a reader, I'll give him that. He was also linked to the crime by a fingerprint left on a candy wrapper at the scene, this being the means of which he lured some of his victims. Yeah, well, he liked them young, right? So Ugh. they'd still be Vs. Yeah. Camargo admitted to killing 71 victims in Ecuador following his escape from prison. Oh, my God, the ocean. I'm mad at you, ocean. While interviewed by police, he reportedly said, I rape virgin girls because they cry. Oh, no. I'm even mad at Billy Ocean yep. just because of, you know, his yeah. and connection. He's my, and he's my second favourite ocean after the, the Atlantic. You don't like the Pacific Ocean? Oh, uh, you know, I used to. <laughs> it wronged you. It wronged me. It didn't drown this fucker. <laughs> um, it should have. He also said, I hate 
I hated sex workers. They disgusted me. I feared venereal diseases and their ravages. I wanted pure virgin women. He's so gross. Oh, he's, he's horrible. I want to burn him and his stepmom. Hmm. What do you think of that, Dexter? Oh, no. <laughs> no he's, he's laughing so hard right now. It's not even funny. He's really not here. He's in his room. Yeah. Crying yeah, about wa- what he's overhearing. No, no, he can't hear us. <laughs> he can't hear he's us. He's watching Transformers on his iPad. He's very safe. Me. I'm sure he's holding one of his like Transformers or My Little Ponies at the same time. Yeah, it's he fine. Lo- he loves MLP, doesn't he? MLP, bro. MLP for life. In 1989, he was convicted and sentenced to 16 years, the maximum sentence available for murder in Ecuador. Ah, oh, because before he was in Colombia. Damn, Ecuador, that was light. He was imprisoned at Aquinto Garcia Moreno Prison. If that which, was its real name. Which had no beach. Uh-huh. No daiquiris. Sentenced no, to a prison without a beach. No banana lounges, nothing like that. No No, boats. like, little drinks and pineapples with little umbrellas. Oh, it was if, a it was a pretty shitty prison, actually. Good. Notorious, even. You'll like this, Tara. Mm-hmm. On November 13, 1994, Camargo was sitting in his cell when a new inmate, 29-year-old Giovanni Jaramillo, entered and forced him to on, onto his knees. After saying, it is the arrow of vengeance, Giovanni stabbed Camargo eight times with a jail-made shank, killing him. He then cut off one of his ears as a trophy. I love this guy. Giovanni. Giovanni showed the ear to the guards. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? It's the time for vengeance. It's, Can you hear yeah. me? And he claimed his aunt was one of Carmega's victims and that he avenged her. Oh, so he'd killed this guy's aunt and this guy like got into prison with him and fucked his shit up. Yes, yes, this I can get behind. Well, because no one claimed uh, Camargo's shitty fucking Cosby ugly rapey <laughs> body, he was buried in a mass grave located at Quinto Alabantine de Cemetery. I pronounce that, I fucking nailed that. Yeah, good work. Um, he Loved was 64 it. years old when he died. I just feel bad for the other people in the unmarked grave because they probably can't get up and leave since he's there. They're like, no. oh, Jesus, not the unmarked grave to be in. How awesome that someone topped him. That yeah. excites me. It's a horrible story. What a body count. Huh? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's really, really revolting and horrifying. But the fact that someone killed him makes me so happy. I know mm. that probably makes me a bad person, but I don't care. Yeah, you know, Tara, I really wanted to talk about a lot of his victims here, and uh, I, I just couldn't find information on them. It was that happens with the older cases, and especially if they're um, from overseas, yeah, you can't get it in English. Yeah, and Google Translate only does so much. Trust me. Yeah. Hmm. Wow, damn! I really love that ending, though. I've got to tell you. Yeah. Yep. Cut his ear off and everything. <laughs> Can you hear me now? It's that time for vengeance. Mm, exactly. Hey, you know what I think uh, we need right now? Um, a uh, banana daiquiri and maybe some lip balm. A prison beach? No. <laughs> I, I was thinking of this thing called Aussie As. I don't know what it is, but I want one. What is it? Oh, I know what it is. Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Give me one now. I will give you one now. Uh, so this one was brought to my attention by Michael Matishak. Thank you very much. I always need these people. If you find one, please do let you, me know. Do you have a team of researchers working for you around the clock? Uh, kind of, but not really. Yeah, Mr. Casefile does research for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not how- Casey McCasefile does my research. <laughs> That's why it's so spot on. Also, this one's about farting, and I know he's into that. <laughs> 
A construction really? firm employee who claimed his former supervisor would regularly lift his bum and fart on him has lost a $1.8 million compensation case. David Hingst sued construction engineering, where he worked as a contract administrator, for psychiatric and physical injuries allegedly suffered as a result of being bullied in the workplace. By the way, being bullied in the workplace is no joke, but this is about farting, okay? Yeah. After an 18-day trial in November before the Supreme Court in Victoria, Justice Rita Zamet dismissed the case, finding that even if the farting occurred, it would not necessarily amount to bullying. Well, you know, it depends how loud and smelly it is, I guess. Oh, yes. Hingst claimed that former supervisor Greg Short, who's probably called Shorto, right? Shorto! Do us uh. another fart, Shorto! <laughs> Anyway, Shorto started farting the day he took a desk in the communal office space, and this progressed to the point where he would do it every day. Well, I guess it's about proximity. Proximity? I guess proximity. it's about proximity too, right, Tara? Well, yeah. Look, just let me finish. If it's right near your face. Well, that would just be another day working with you for me, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, that's a Friday. So Shorto had this to say in court. He said... Um, Look, I don't recall doing it, but I might have done it once or twice maybe. But I can't recall. I don't recall doing. So so like, I'm not flat out saying I didn't or I did. I just I just can't remember doing it. I remember every one of my farts. <laughs> you do not I write because in, you I do write so them, many. I write them in my fart diary. <laughs> That's got to be bigger than an old school phone Would book. you like to see it? No, I've already smelt it. I don't need to fucking see it. Shotto denied he was doing it with the intention of distressing or harassing Hingst. The court heard that the constant farting led Hinks to spray deodorant on Shorto and call him Mr. Stinky. Oh, well, that, that sounds quite apt. You know, my boyfriend at the moment is doing a doctorate. And when I was like, oh, what are you doing it for? Like, what's the purpose? He went, oh, it's so if I become like a horrible criminal, I'm not Mr. Stinky. I'm like Dr. Stinky. That was actually his response. <laughs> oh, can, I call, can I call Jay that now? Go ahead. All right. Another former employee, Philip Hamilton, told the court he recalled times that Hinks got quite offended by some of the stuff that went on. Obviously, there were incidences where Shorto would walk over to the printer, which Hinks sat behind, and he'd fart on it, and that would happen quite frequently, he said. He'd fart on the printer. Yeah. Well, I fart on the printer, but it's only to get rid of lizards. Yeah, we've got to make sure there are no lizards in there, because we do not want to kill another lizard. Only one lizard has died to make this podcast so far. That's true. Um, anyway, he went on to say, I mean, I'd laugh it off, you know, walk out or whatever, but I knew that Mr. Hinks took quite offence to it and I've got to be honest, at the time I didn't really understand. The core of Hinks' bullying case was that Shorto, former supervisor Luke Pepperell and company director Simon Barker were engaged in a conspiracy to get him fired. A farting conspiracy? A farting, <laughs> a farting conspiracy to get him fired. Yay. He claimed he'd received a phone call five or six weeks before he was made redundant in which Shorto abused him about his work performance, allegedly telling him that he'd fucked up, he kept fucking up and he was not worth shit. Not good, like, supervisor behaviour, I've got to say. No, that's not really constructive, is it? Mm -mm. Hinks claimed in the background he could hear some sort of loud laughter as if people were listening into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, like that. That's, that's very wrong. The flatulence incidents were among a number of allegations... <laughs> That painted a picture of working culture at the company, according to Hingst. He claimed he was told his brewed coffee was shit 
And then he was not invited to go out for coffee with his co-workers. He was left alone in the office to drink his shit coffee. Yeah, and smell my farts. In throwing out the case, Justice Samet found there was no evidence of bullying, describing Hingst as an unreliable and unsatisfactory witness. Mr Short did not bully or harass the plaintiff, she said, nor did any other employee at the defendant company. Mr Hamilton's evidence was that there was some inappropriate behaviour in the office, including passing wind, but that it was typical banter or mucking around. Well, this is what I've been telling you for months. Uh, yes, and you're wrong, dude. Oh, by the way, yeah, I didn't think it was harassment. I just assumed you were crazy. It's natural. Oh, there's this thing that it's Barney natural. does sometimes, right? He'll look me in the eye and it'll be like we're in a normal conversation and then he'll like start doing a slow fart while looking me in the eye. <laughs> I've only let it happen once because I didn't understand what was happening and now I just turn away. Uh, you know, hey, I'm a classy guy. It was what one of I the say? creepiest things I've ever experienced. I've only done it a couple of times. Come on, I don't fart that much in front of you. <laughs> sure. Anyway, just as Zamet went on to say, it's difficult to see how Mr Short's conduct could have intimidated or caused distress to the plaintiff Indeed, on the plaintiff's own evidence, had he not lost his job and been abused over the telephone, the flatulence would never have been a big issue. Blah. So, yeah, um, I guess, like, the rest of his case was pretty weak and sort of focusing on the fart thing didn't get him Can't anywhere. Prove that. Can't prove it, man. No. By the way, the one fart I'm glad you do is when you fart on the printer just to make sure there's no lizards in Well, yeah, and no, no, that scarred us. Oh, that man. was terrible. That was it's little hands creeping on. Oh, yeah. Not okay. In case you haven't heard that episode when we talked about that, oh. it happened just before we started recording. We were we'll, we'll printing, printing out, out our, our stories, notes. our notes. And uh, we got a printer jam and opened the lid and there were these tiny little... Barney was going to be tired of those little hands sticking out those little hands and I'm like, fuck no, there isn't. There can't be, there can't be hands. What? And then we both got down and I was like, there's hands. And it was so bad. Oh, uh, it got horribly squished. Oh, this little, it was really terrible. But it didn't die straight away too, oh. which was made, which is what made it much you worse. You know what? Your farts probably don't mean that there's no lizard in there. It just means that they've been gassed to death and they're not going to feel any of the printer stuff happening to you. Uh, We're so sorry, lizard. Yeah, I give it a kick too. And actually, we've got a different printer now too, which is not as big. Oh, and hopefully it's quite lizard proof. But we, we do check now to make sure that we're not going to kill a lizard. <sighs> okay, so I think we're getting toward the end, are we? Look, we really are. Hey, um, people out there, vote for Bloody Murder in please. the uh, Australian Podcast Awards. com. Yeah, please vote for us. We'd like to show people that... There are a lot of weird fuckers out there yeah. and we can represent. Sexy Barney says do it now. Oh. com. You can vote for Felon and True Crime Island as well. That's really true. <laughs> Continue. Well, thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. Thank you. If you would like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And speaking of which... Someone I would- did it! Speaking of which, thank you, Emma Oliver, for making a little donation to us. And uh, we will use that to um, buy some drinks. Yeah, it wasn't so little. That's going to get us quite a few drinks. Thank you so much, Emma. You know what we do with our Patreon money? We we, well, we, we put it back into the show. We pretty much put it back into the show. Pretty we, much. It's like 100% goes back into the show. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for that. It, yeah, it, um, it, I don't know if we'd still be going without it. So thank you so much. You know what? You know what else is at our website? There's a link to our merch store, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it really is, actually. There's heaps of cool stuff. 
I'd just like to take a second before we go to thank some people who have written us some nice reviews. So thank you so much, Amber Postemma, Jimmy Davis, and Mel Court. Thank you so much for doing that. We do appreciate it. We really do. Hey, Tara, I've been Barney Black. Who have you been? Uh, I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some more bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you're interested in awesome shit and want to make some great new friends. Yay. And follow us on Twitter and Snapshit and Insta. Mm Mm-hmm. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. I've got a butt for you, Tara. Ah, is it a big butt? It's a big butt. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You know it's just around the corner from your big butt, your ugly tuna saloon. Oh, no, yes, the ugly tuna saloon. I'm so so sorry, dude. No, Nick West. No, we love his podcast. Apparently he found it really funny, but I'm just a bit worried that on the comeback next episode, Nick West is going to be talking to, and he'll be like, I'm here talking to the owner of that. (laughs) About this really serious thing. I'm sure he can keep it together, but it's going to be hard to laugh next time he has to say it. Hey, you know we're going to have drinks in a couple of weeks with uh, Cambo and uh, Brod. I wish Baz was going to be there. I wish Baz was too, and Nick. And Nick. And Erica. They kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.